Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Dan Q. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. A composite show, archive segments from previous episodes that got cut due to time. Episode 308 with Makalua, the Mean Team, Mega Bears fan, Candace Albinus, and the Buzzing. Something that actually I like to talk about a lot. Stringer1313 posted, can we reframe the AI discussion? And it looks like this topic isn't actually about AI, but rather about trying to find other ways to ease the burden of the AI by shifting difficulty and challenge to other aspects of the game, which is something that I've talked extensively about in the past with things like making the map more dynamic and adding more challenges to the map and just more options and user customization to tailor the experience. So uh, I definitely like this idea in concept. Uh, For example, Stringer points out specifically the colonization game where your competition is not the rival civs, but rather your mother country, which has an inherent and complete acceptable different rule set. I don't know if that's necessarily the best example, because in some cases, colonization felt like it was playing two games, where the game just completely changed at the very end to a different game, which I didn't like. But principle, the idea could work very well, and colonization is an example of what you can do and what doesn't necessarily work right. I don't think that works well for a Civ title, though, because colonization is about a specific time period inside a specific nation, whereas we're talking about the entire span of history. Right. We had talked about uh, the old Terra map that used to be on Civ 4 and maybe on Civ 5, which was basically all the Civs started out on one big continent, and then there was another continent that was full of just nothing but barbarians. So the idea being that when you got to researching caravels, there was actually a new world to explore that was not just populated with equally advanced civilizations. It was populated with barbarians and context of Civ 6 could be city-states, and maybe in a possible Civ 7, maybe like Matic civilizations that wander around the map, which you can then conquer and clear out land and colonize. So there was actually a almost second exploration and expansion phase in the middle of the game where everybody's going to the new world and plopping down their colonies and building new cities and getting new resources and so forth. And that's something that's almost completely absent from civilization as it stands now, because when you find that other continent... There's an equally advanced civilization there that is not any different than just fighting another civilization on your continent, except that you just need a navy to do it now. So that would be one way of designing a map so as to provide challenge that isn't necessarily dependent on the other civs playing well. But there's other ideas, too, and other people in this thread have proposed anything I guess one way you can make the game harder without using the AI is to just spam the world with world-changing events, and that's not fun for anybody. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not fun if they're random. I think if you do a good job of designing systems where you can see these 
world-changing events coming and prepare for them and plan for them, then that sort of stuff can work. I think just as long as they don't do what Civ Four does, where it's just you get a random pop-up saying one of your grassland tiles has changed to desert, that sucks. But if you actually know that there's some meter somewhere that's telling you that you're polluting the environment, and after you pollute it so much, it eventually turns into deserts, then that could be a system that could work. Things like resource depletion, where, yeah, you've been working that iron mine since the classical era, and now you're in the industrial era, and there's no more iron left to mine. Now you got to go find more. Yeah, those things that we always hated in Civ 3. Right, but again, I think the issue in Civ 3 and Civ 4 was those events were random. If you know it's happening, and if you can control the rate at which it happens, right, like if there's actually like a bar meter or something on the mine that tells you that it's being depleted, almost like if it's a supply, like Civ 5 or in real-time strategy games, you have actual supply. Like in StarCraft, you mine your minerals, right? And then the minerals are eventually depleted. But you know that that's going to happen. It's not like just some random point in the game, your minerals are gone. What decisions are you making that alter the outcome of the game as a result of this interaction? Well, I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing ideas out, brainstorming. That's the consideration that really matters, right? Like you're you're being presented with a choice where depending on the situation, you'll make different choices and you'll have be better off or worse off for the choices you make. Right. And that would be something that the designers would figure out. But just in general, I'm saying that I am at least receptive to the idea that more challenge could be put on the map or on things like the internal domestic management of your empire, because other games have done that. You've got like Stellaris and Endless Space 2 that have faction management, political systems. I've only played those games briefly, so I can't say whether or not those are good systems. I'm okay with this, but let me point out that this is the type of thing that is very difficult on the AI as well. And so anytime you have AI competitors with the same rule set as you, when you add these complications, it actually makes the game more challenging on the AI. A good example of this, not Stellaris, but I'm very well acquainted with EU4, of course. You start adding things like estates, which can give you monarch points and plus five advisors for better economy management. And it is pretty obvious pretty quickly that good players have much more benefit from these systems than the AI. And so in the relative position of player to AI actually grow. There's an even bigger gap as a result of adding these systems that are allegedly challenging. And they are. Like You need to learn the system, and optimizing for it requires you to make better decisions. But ultimately, if you become good at them, then the game itself is even easier uh, to beat the AI. So like these could be useful if you're making good choices with them, because the AI is not going to be as good with them. We've had some examples of systems like this in the Civ franchise that have worked reasonably well, I felt, from Beyond Earth, where you had the technological discoveries for each new thing that you built, and you eventually got all of them, but when you got them was kind of random. So you knew over the course of a whole game that you were going to get a good majority of these discoveries and you were going to make a good majority of the decisions, but when you got them and when you made them had some randomness in it. And that seems like a level of randomness that could work quite well in other parts of Civ. Like if you've got events that are going to come along out of a big pool and you're going to say over the course of the game, see maybe 50 of the events and there are 100 in the pool, there starts to be some consistency rather than randomness to it, right? Eh, not really. Unless it's something like you get an event every specific amount of time, there's no consistency to it if it's random. So there's consistency across the whole play experience, right? Any individual event I've got to respond to now over the next, say, 10 or 20 turns, it's going to have some kind of impact. 
the concern we always seem to bring up whenever we talk about any kind of random system is, well, what if one player gets it and the other player doesn't? But if you start to have a lot of events that occur like that, they start to even out between multiple play sessions and multiple players, even though each player's experience is different. Yeah, you just have to make sure that not one of those things where they're all negative events that just make the players want to rage quit or reload from an earlier save and save scum to not have that happen to them. Uh, in reality, too, the impact from events is almost never comparable across a game. If people say it evens out over time, it's just, it's just strictly false. It can, but it usually doesn't. And the other thing is, very often, this doesn't have to be the case, but in most cases it is. There's just not any interesting choices uh, regarding these. You're either presented with a single choice or you have a false choice scenario in the vast majority of these things cropping up. So you just get a random penalty. Yeah, like Comet cited. The problem with that is not only is there no player choice being made in the context of this event, but it actually levels the playing field. It, It reduces the importance of other choices made in the game that did matter by a small amount. Or if it's a particularly game-breaking event, it can reduce the importance of the choices by a great amount. But that's rare. In most cases, you're just leveling the playing field a little bit arbitrarily for really no reason. And nobody's really making any choices surrounding these interactions. And and that's why players don't like it. They might instead internalize this argument as this isn't fair or this is stupid or whatever but ultimately it's just an interaction where the players choices in a strategy game where choices are the crux of who wins don't matter and that's annoying in the uh, chat drusain is saying i want a system where you can cause pollution that raises water levels and that drops your enemies coastal cities into the ocean Flat press I left mean, mouse button to continue. In some ways, that's actually a better implementation than some of the crap that Civ and EU4 and all these games do. That's a player choice that matters. As lulzy and stupid as that would be in practice in the way the game is implemented now, like that's something you know could happen and you could make happen <laughs> and you could plan against your enemies doing. Like, <laughs> you might have a world of inland cities, but... <laughs> I want to be well, able to blow up the nuclear reactor that's on one of my coastal cities so that it irradiates all the fish and sicks a bunch of mutant radioactive whale monsters on my overseas opponents. <laughs> that's like a legitimate choice you're making, though, that has impact on the outcome and your opponents can know and plan against. So in that sense, as stupid as it sounds, it's actually better than a lot of what they put in. <laughs> Yes, after you complete the uh, Manhattan Project, there is a random chance that Godzilla will spawn and just wipe everyone out. Rocks fall, everyone dies. Just hit that button. (laughs) What about... Okay, but what about if after you complete the Manhattan Project, there's at some point an event that occurs that is, how do we tackle nuclear waste? What do you do with this event? What are your choices? How does it impact the the outcome of the game? you, You need choices that are relevant and impactful and are going to send your society in different directions. Yeah, it sounds like something that you could maybe be some kind of like UN sort of mechanic, where you said eventually after nuclear weapons or nuclear reactors start getting developed, then yeah, suddenly there is the global problem of what to do with all the waste, and then there should be some mechanics where there's some, the civilizations get together in a committee. And that's something that I would like to see a little bit more of in the Civ games, is more committee diplomacy especially with regard to the World Congress and the UN, where it's not just something pops up and then we all vote on it, but where there's actually some kind of discussion that happens where you are trying to win 
other factions over to your opinions and stuff like that. Oh, that would be really difficult to implement. Can we have diplomacy full stop? Well, yeah. Multilateral diplomacy in general would be a nice thing to have if the uh, AI could... Any diplomacy? Not give me 50 things for the five things you want. That would be great. Yeah. I think we probably need a more complicated political system as a whole for that, though, right? Like, we need some kind of concept of diplomatic capital so that trades don't have to be even. Because you want to be able to say, well, I'm going to trade you this thing up front now for goodwill later. And, like, later on, I'm expecting it to be paid back. Which game was it that had favors and how well those worked out? That was the game that we shall not speak of beyond earth yeah but yeah no there were a lot of promising ideas in beyond earth at least i thought so just that the the game as a whole was just kind of meh yeah and some of them did make it into civ 6 so Mm -hmm. yeah but there is a lot of things that i would not mind seeing firaxis revisit on like a civ title proper and the diplomatic capital idea is one of those the separating fear and respect the regard to how the ais perceive you is something that i think could have value but I see other things in this thread about wanting to change victory conditions. One person proposes maybe having mini victories, I guess, that are in each era. <laughs> so throughout the game, you're contributing directly to almost like a victory point system. Yes, even more pseudo victory conditions. <laughs> but I mean, it's an idea. What Civ has is a gaming condition that's perceived as a victory condition. If we got a good underlying score system, which we haven't got at the moment, right? If the score system, but if the score system, if we put some time in and we build it up and we make a score system that actually represents how successful you've been over the course of the game, and then we say when somebody does the space race, like that's the end condition for the game, and now we tot up the scores and we compare the empires. Why would someone who's lagging in score go for a space race then if they would still lose after getting it? Well, presumably you have some kind of big bonus on triggering the victory condition. That's typically what you see in board games. If you're going to be short, even if you do that, then why would you do it? So if you don't do it, then somebody else is going to do it, right? And if you're already behind and the score bonus from doing the science victory is not going to push you up to the top of the board... There's probably very little you can do at this stage to catch up. You're probably far enough behind. Well, short of kingmaking and basically just ending the game so that another player who you want to win wins instead of that player's rival. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a desirable way to handle it either. Or and I'm like wondering, can you like get conquered in the end game and then still end because you had you did well? <laughs> uh, like maybe, but it opens up quite a lot of design space. One of the things we've seen with this version of civilization is the idea that civilizations have power at particular historic moments where they were potent, right? Because their units and things all come online at that time. And if you were planning on that kind of arc, there's nothing to say that you couldn't win the game by having the great Roman Empire that rises and still falls by the end of the game. But at the end of the game, you've accumulated enough score that you still had the biggest impact. It almost sounds like you're proposing a scoring system that's basically using the era score as a way of determining winners. Possibly. I think I would want to see something substantially more complicated than era score. Yeah. You probably want some hidden information in there to avoid this idea that, well, I know for certain now if I trigger the science victory, I'm going to lose because such and such has got more points. Like board games deal with it by having, say, a pool of victory points ranging from one to three points that are face down. So you know you've scored this many tokens, but you're not quite certain what the value of those tokens is. Mm. I don't like hidden information in general when it comes to the rules. 
Well, not the rules. He's talking about hidden information in terms of just how close to winning are the other players or just how high their score is. Other players' progress, okay, fine. Own progress? Mm. So you could, like, normally in those kind of games, you can look at your own score chips, right, as you draw them. Like, you look at your score chip, you place it face down, so you know what your score is. What you don't know for certain is what other people's score is, because you don't know what their chips are with. Information that's available to your competitor should not necessarily be available to you. Yes, that's fine. Like, for example, in Settlers of Catan, you've got the development cards, which may have things that give you victory points or the armies that give you the largest army victory point. And you know that you have those, but the other players don't necessarily know that you have those unless you actually play them from your hand. Okay, yeah. It also opens up more opportunities for things like joint victory conditions, because you can tie into things where you effectively have a winner and a runner-up and you know that you were very close. So even if you're not tying your success together in, well, you did the space race, so you kind of won, but I supported you in it, you can still support the person in that endeavor and score points by doing it. I'd rather see mechanics where the leader and the runner-up are put into conflict with one another, but can definitely see there being room where if they've been allies throughout the entire game, and that's part of the reason why they are the leader and the runner-up, then yeah, they should be able to win together, because they dominated the game. That's especially true if they're doing it militarily, because if they're successful in that, then they're going to be leader and runner-up. Yeah. As a result of trashing everybody else. Yeah. Have you ever had one of those situations where you feel like you know there's something wrong with an idea, but you just can't verbalize it? I have no idea why. This sounds really off to me, like it wouldn't work, and I can't figure out why. In Civ, victory conditions are pretty final. Like, if you were the first one to go to Alpha Centauri, it doesn't matter anymore what happens on Earth because everybody else is left behind. And in the military victory, if everybody else is dead, there's nobody else but you. In the diplomacy conditions, you've been elected leader of the world. It doesn't matter what they think anymore because you control everything. Well, unless the leader changes, like just again, comparing to Stellaris, Stellaris has that federation mechanic where the president or whatever of the federation changes every so many turns. So just being elected world leader shouldn't necessarily be the end state of the game. You should actually have to do something with that leadership to prove that you deserve it and then retain it. But the definition of a victory is that you have won. The game is over. True. But in the case of you use the example of the Alpha Centauri spaceship, just because you launched a spaceship to Alpha Centauri and you started colonizing the planet or Mars in the case of uh, of Civ 6, you still left the rest of your civilization on Earth. And if somebody nukes the rest of your civilization out of existence the day after you launched your Alpha Centauri colony ship, uh, you lose because if your capital gets taken when your spaceship is still in orbit, you're dead. That's how it goes. Right, but you're kind of drawing an almost arbitrary cutoff line. What about your entire civilization being nuked the day after you established the colony? Okay, sure, you've got a colony on Alpha Centauri, but the rest of your civilization's been wiped out back at home. This is a game with arbitrary rules. Well, The victory conditions are arbitrary by definition. True, but because they're arbitrary, we can set them where we want. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here. It would absolutely be a very different kind of sip to what we have now. The ultimate goal would be different. It would be build a big, impressive empire rather than race to this victory condition. But we have a lot of problems that result from this race to the victory condition that we are difficult to tackle because the approach we take is race to the victory condition. 
Right. Uh, again, you know, I've used this example a couple times in the past. There's a new Civilization board game called A New Dawn that has a series of objective cards that are drawn, and each card has two victory conditions on it. And the winner of the game is the first player to achieve one victory from each of those cards. So you could have a system like that in Civilization computer games where there's a wider variety of conditions that contribute towards victory, but you have to complete more than one of them. So you still have to have a kind of diverse, more balanced empire than just, oh, race through the tech tree, build the spaceship parts, be done with it. It doesn't matter that I was generating zero culture and zero tourism, and that the guy next to me is generating all the culture and all the tourism and is one turn away from converting me over to wearing his blue jeans and listening to his rock music. If you force multi-victory condition attainment, then yeah, you'll get impressive empires, but you're going to get a lot of the same choices being made all the time, too. And still have plenty of those games where you get exhausted because you know you've got it, but you have to meet the technical condition for it. Oh, yeah, this would be awful in that regard, especially if you had a dominant military civ that could shut down other people winning. Then you're really going through the motions a long time. Because (laughs) even if you kill everybody, you don't necessarily win. You could introduce specific sub-challenges that address things like that, like the the stalling where you've won, but you've no clear goals, right? You're just waiting to get to the goal. The goal is to win. Yeah, the goal is to win. The problem is that the outcome is effectively out of doubt long before the game actually physically ends. That's the persistent problem in 4X and especially in Civ. Games going back to the 90s have significantly shortened this period, but uh, not Civ. So maybe, for example, one of the things you introduce is like you have a civil war. And if you are successful in managing the crisis of the civil war, you score some points towards your victory conditions. What triggers the civil war? Well, you want a series of events throughout the course of the game, right, that would contribute. But you can put them in as sort of shorter objectives than the final goal. Yeah, but this again comes back to the previous issue, which was if you're introducing these sort of more sophisticated political and faction systems, then the AI also has to be good enough to handle them. Otherwise, yeah, sure, you can beat your Civil War rebels, but the other AIs might not be able to. So they're still not a threat to win the game. You probably don't have your AI try and play the same game. You probably have your AI try and do what's relatively fun for the other players in it while being competitive, which may mean that instead of having the AI play through the whole Civil War scenario, you give it some odds based on its flavors of successfully managing that crisis. I think the AI, as long as it's taking the position of a playable civ, has to be playing by the same rules as the player, and it has to be trying to win the same victory conditions as the player. Otherwise, it's not a real game. It's a simulation. Well, that's how Civ is now. You can make a game where it's not multiplayer and the AI is not really a competitor. It's just a flat obstacle. But that's not what Civ is advertising and it's not how Civ is mostly playing. This is a different game entirely if you start giving the AI different rules. Well, the AI currently has different rules. Um, Sort of. It it plays on different difficulty. It gets a different set of modifiers. It almost certainly doesn't interact with things in the same way that humans do. Well, those aren't um, different It has rules. the same victory conditions, the same unit choices, the same era stuff. All that's the same. Yeah, a handicap is different than a rule change. Well, the players can get handicaps, too, depending on difficulty right. level. That's just a handicap. You can give that to humans, too, actually, if you want. You can and give you, you get that. advantage. So you get that if example, you play on Settler. Yeah. So as an example, in Civ Five, the AI would not attack from out of the fog of war with a mounted unit. 
If you couldn't see the mounted unit at the end of your turn, it would not charge up and attack you. It would charge up into position but not attack you, but it could not attack. And in Civ 6, that changed. Like, they can now charge out of the fog of war and hit you. Okay. So the AI is playing with a different rule set. And the the idea that you're going to get in any kind of reasonable time frame... That's not a different rule. I think that's just the AI decision-making tree wasn't working correctly in Civ Five, where the AI wasn't realizing that it could make the attack. Because, I don't know, maybe it was deciding whether or not to make the attack before it decided whether or not to move. Yeah, that sounds like an order of operations error. Yeah, that's not a different rule. I'm almost certain that it was a design choice because units charging out of the fog of war and killing your stuff is a bad experience for players. I, I don't care about overtly bad design choices in particular, though. Like, just, just the theory that if the AI is a competitor for the same victory condition, it should be playing the same game based on the rules presented. It shouldn't be playing something other than Civ Six. The AI in Civ Six should play Civ Six, not something else. Then you probably limit your market to the people who are looking for a strong competitive game. I would guess that the market for a strong competitive game is smaller than the market for the general experience. I don't see how somebody else playing the game the same as you is necessarily and not a general experience. Like the only reason so, it doesn't work is because the game is designed and implemented poorly, so it's not balanced. So the so, incentives are screwy. So if I'm designing an AI and I design it to be ruthlessly efficient and try and win, it's gonna give a very different experience to your player than if I design an AI that is trying to be fun and engaging with a human player. What's the difference between these two? Okay, so I've had a student who's been working on the Civ 5 and Civ 6 AIs since Christmas. One of the things that they've discovered is a lot of the decisions that the Civ 5 AI particularly is making isn't necessarily the decision a player would make. You couldn't improve its efficiency by getting it to turtle up and tech science because there's no advantage for it getting into an early war. But if you do that and all your AIs behave in a way that tries to win them the game, potentially you've got very little going on in the world. If the optimal thing to do is to hide behind your walls and attack your science as fast as you can, then the world's static and passive and nothing happens from the player's perspective. Okay, and this is where I say that making the AI not play optimally is a cop-out and that the developers failed the design of the game itself. If the optimal strategy from a competitive sense is to turtle and sit there for the majority of the game, you screwed up and you screwed up before you made an AI. But that could also come down to the victory conditions, because there are victory conditions that are to turtle. That's fine, but that's the reality. If your incentive is to sit there doing nothing, and it's not fun to sit there doing nothing, this is not an AI failure. The AI is not the problem here. Right. So You need the, the game to work first. The game should work, and then you have an AI that plays the game. But you don't right. make the AI play something other than the game, because you can't make a game. And that's so, what Civ 6 is doing. And I so really... just. Don't not like that choice at all. So if you make a game like of that style and that level of complexity, the idea that you're going to build an AI that is comparable with your top level players is pretty laughable. Well, um, of course. And then yeah, the know. AI isn't as good as humans. Fine. That's fine. But it should still be trying to win within the context of the rules. Like it's hard enough to make a good AI without intentionally hamstringing it further. Have you ever played Galsiv 2? I haven't. I haven't. I would suggest you go and look at what the Galsiv 2 AIs would do on higher levels, because they're pretty dang ruthless and efficient. You can design a game where the AI is effective, but you have to make choices in the construction of your game that support it. Yes. I would like to see for AI intelligence to actually improve with difficulty levels that I like to see. That's a huge burden, though. Yeah, like, I know. What you're suggesting is not trivial. <laughs> no, I know. 
But <laughs> if you were going to do that, you would be increasing turn times dramatically. Possibly. And they're already long. Well, unless you make the AI dumber on easier difficulties and then the turns go faster. But then, yeah, it's that's not necessarily good either. It's terrible. But, but you were just saying that in Gal Civ 2, that it sounded like that's what you were saying that it worked, is the AIs actually played better on higher difficulties. They were more ruthless. They weren't just getting passive bonuses that make them better at doing the same things that the player's doing, so they have more of everything. Well, they did the same thing on lower levels as well, but on the higher levels, they also had the bonuses. Oh, okay. Which made them more effective. So they're ruthless and deficient either way. What they did was they looked at the best players on the forums and then figured out what they did and then told the AI to do that. And it worked. It made the game much more difficult and much more fun but at the same time you weren't crushed under the weight of everything because it was still doable and yeah, a lot of this does come down to the design of the game and this is why i like give the ai more of a pass than most other players who are complaining about the state of the game in general is that in the current framework of civ 6 and even more so in civ 5 the, the optimal strategy of the design is broken And in that context, how do you make a good AI when the core premise of the game is off? (laughs) You have to fix the game first before you make the AI play it. So we're basically talking about whether the AI should play to win the game by the same exact rule set or whether the AI should play basically to provide flavor and context to the game. Correct. And one way that you could maybe do both is if the objectives or agendas of the various civilizations are a path to victory. Yeah, that could work. So then each individual civilization, and this might also be too complex to code because you've got to write almost unique AIs for every single leader, but you could have a situation where the way that Cleopatra wins the game is different than the way that Teddy Roosevelt wins the game. And the AIs would have to be programmed so that they're playing their civilization towards that civilization's victory objectives. And then the player would also be playing towards that chosen civilization's victory conditions. So instead of just having the static five victory conditions that we have now, there could be more unique sets of victory conditions that are dependent on each particular civ. And then the AIs are both playing to win the game and playing with flavor. The problem yeah, with it's, that... It's very challenging, though. It's tough, yeah. To do this, especially because now you're implying a need for balance between victory conditions, which is something Civilization right. has never had in any of its titles. Yeah, I didn't say it would be easy. There's a serious problem with this idea, and that's that you're assuming that all map starts and all game states, you can win in the same way from each spot. Well, not necessarily, because... If an AI is pre-programmed to go for a certain type of victory, then you're going to end up with that AI trying to go for a suboptimal victory condition because it's programmed to do it and not taking advantage of, oh, I'm on a land map, so I can't kill everybody with land units. I should use naval units. Right. But again, for example, we talked earlier briefly about things like having victory points and goals and objectives and stuff like that. And if we had a situation where, you know, civilization did become like a victory point game as opposed to a reach the victory condition at the end of the game, then each of the civilization's agendas could be associated with victory points. And then the amount of points that those award could be scaled such that it's not just a matter of whether or not you complete your objective. You still have to do other conditions to win the game as well. But then you end up with achievement tasks. If you're playing as a civilization that gets victory points from building a bunch of useless units, you build a bunch of useless units and then you delete them and go on to something else. Possibly. And that's not good gameplay either. Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, either way, it's not a trivial task no matter what you do. 
there are examples out there of things that do something similar to this. If you take a look at some of Amplitude Studios stuff, Endless Legend, for example, very civ-like game, hex-based, but the different civilizations all have much, much stronger flavor. They have very strong, unique abilities that force very specific types of playstyles for them, and each of them's realistically constrained to one or two types of victory conditions based on those playstyles. But there's a lot of replayability in it because of that, and the AI plays them very differently. I don't know. If you have 10 factions and they all have to win a certain way, you play all 10 factions and then you've beat the game. Depends on what you're being presented by the environment. Yeah. And how they are interacting with each other. Like, there's still space for replayability there. And you could have a situation where, using your example, there's 10 factions, but maybe there's 20 different ways to win, and each faction is specialized for, like, say, five of those different ways instead of all 20 of them. Because right now, every Civ is just competing for the same five victory conditions. So if you have a Civ that, like, has to go for some subset of those, but that possibility space is still large enough to provide a lot of variety and a lot of options you might still end up with something that works well yeah to put it into it to give an example in sort of a civ context it would be like the idea that in instead of farming for food you don't access food on the map at all instead you use industry to manufacture food it would completely change the weighting of different technologies and, and different placement yeah, and city placement. And that's how their game works. They've still got four resources on the map, but certain factions don't have access to some of those resources or are terrible at using those, but really optimal at using other kinds. And it yeah. completely shakes up your understanding of the tech tree. Case in point, I've been playing recently a board game called Star Trek Ascendancy, and there's two factions that are expansion factions. One is the Cardassians and one is the Ferengi. And the Ferengi have a rule set where they literally are not allowed to generate culture. They cannot build the infrastructure that generates culture. The only way that they can earn culture is either by capturing that infrastructure from other players or by trading five production tokens in for one culture token. And then similarly, the Cardassians have a ability that makes it so that they cannot generate production in any of their planets unless they have ships in orbit of those planets. So those really do focus those particular factions towards specific play styles the ferengi are all about having to trade and the cardassians are all about conquering planets and then having to spread their military very thin in order to actually administer those planets whereas the other factions aren't bound by those conditions but we're talking about civ here there's never been a society in the history of mankind that has ever been able to produce food with hammers and by the same token we've never had a society that didn't develop a culture of its own well, maybe not from the beginning, but by the time you reach the industrial era, there's a lot of industrial agriculture. Pro- you know. Game's largely over by then, though. Well, yeah. We still can't produce food with hammers. To get a hammer and a bunch of material and hammer it to make it into food. Food is something that comes from something else. We can t- turn science into hammers, maybe. I mean, it's theoretically possible because we have used science to create production, but we've never used science to create food directly. You improve yields, what... but you're still using base source. Yeah, it, yeah. this what... is tough to do. And when Firaxis wants to, and I, I think most people also want to have a large number of civilizations available in the game, which makes this kind of implementation where each one is drastically different nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. So the, I think the better play would be to have the map be the source of what causes you to play differently. Yeah. Now, understandably, this is hard on the AI, but like I said, as long as the AI is trying to win, I don't care if it's not as good as a player. 
<laughs> if we you could, want to play against players, you can just play against players. We could think of food more broadly, probably, than things we feed our people with, because it's really a growth mechanic for your city, right? So you have to have enough food to feed your current people. Fair. But then your excess food fills up a bar, which presumably represents you've got excess food, so your people are more able to breed, right? Oh, you have more food. I don't know if we so, want to go down that rabbit hole, though. <laughs> okay. You have more food, so you can afford to have more children. Right. What if we say we've got a society like, say, the Mongols, where you need to produce enough food to feed your people and your farming technology is not very good. So you only produce half the food perhaps other people produce, but your military might attracts other clans to join you. And that's your main growth mechanic. Like you have military might, your military might grows your cities and your food is just there to stop people starving. But this is a whole different game you're talking about here because there are no other tribes. You can't. Yes. Uh, I, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense within the framework of Civ. I'm presuming that there are people out there that are not represented just by our giant cities. That I'm presuming there are other settlements. Yes, and those are the people that are represented by food growth. Because not only does Our food variants. growth mean you can have more people, it also means people can move into your city. If that's the case, we don't have to have food as being the only source of that growth, right? But you have to have the food for the growth to happen. We have to yeah. have enough food to support the people who are there and arrive. But we don't have to have this idea that we fill up a stockpile of food. This people. is the gameplay abstraction. The stockpile of food is the representation of there being enough food extra for people to move in and to have more children. Well, not necessarily that we're putting it all in a granary. What the buzzing is talking about is something that's actually already kind of in the game, right? Because you can have a bunch of cities that don't produce very much food and don't grow and then just build a bunch of units and capture everybody else's cities. And that's where you get all your population from. So he's talking about a system where a civilization actually like specializes in doing that or has some alternative way of getting those extra cities either from other players or from friendly tribes or city-states or barbarians or ancient villages. So basically Venice and Civ Five. Kind of. Yeah, he's talking about something like that. Except with half the food production. Something like that. I'm talking about a system where the mechanic for one civilization doesn't necessarily have to be the same mechanic for another civilization. Maybe one civilization makes all its money from local resources and another civilization only makes its money by trade. But that doesn't make sense in human history because all civilizations pretty much follow the same path. They all make the same things generally. Well, I mean, there's a lot of variants, but they all basically do the same thing. They all have kids. They all make cities or make settlements or have tribes. It, like You can't make a game like Civ and have wandering tribes in it. It just doesn't make sense. We've got examples of this in things like the Dark Age policies, right? Like they've got very strong negatives and very strong positives. And if your Civ came with an ability like that, that you were stuck with the entire game, it would radically change the way you played that Civ. But you've got to put this on like 20 different factions and have them interact decently. Yeah. Building this would be extremely challenging. Hmm? Right. This is something that's common in a lot of other Vorex strategy games. Again, like looking at like Stellaris and Endless Space and Endless Legend and stuff like that. But from my experience, those games have like 10 or 12 factions in them. Or less. They usually have eight. Yeah. And those games also represent sci-fi and fantasy, where you're not talking about a relatively homogenous species of humans. 
But there's still a wide variety even in human cultures. Like, for example, civilization, as you already pointed out, doesn't really represent in any way actual nomadic civilizations. So but we're trying to abstract the 6,000-year game of uh, yeah. history, and that makes the individual cultural differences pretty difficult to model. Culture changes a lot over, like, two centuries, <laughs> which is a couple turns in the early game. But if you boil every country in the world down to what they all have in common, they all make things, they all eat food, they all have units of culture that put them together, and they all have a production method and making science. They have some other things too, but those are the ones that are most easily modeled in-game. And the rest of them are just human basics. Now, if you're talking about endless space where you've got insect people who don't need to eat anything other than metal, that doesn't fit in a Civ game because there are no humans that have ever lived that can eat metal and live on metal. It doesn't, but we explicitly have in Civ societies that are designed around long distance trade routes, for example. It's just such a small part of the gameplay, though. The majority of what you're choosing in Civ is going to be the same, regardless of what Civ you choose across a game, with a few things varying based on their unique abilities or unique units or buildings. But most of your decisions, if you pick a different Civ and play the same start on the same map, are going to be similar. Because every society faces pretty much the same questions. Yeah, I just don't think it's realistic to have vastly disparate abilities in a Civ game because of the number of Civs and because we're using humans as a framework. It's impractical. Unless you want to just make six Civs and concentrate on a period or something. Like You'd be getting pretty far away from what people expect when they play a Civ game that way, though. Like I said, it's a whole different game you're talking about. Yeah. Could be fun, though. <laughs> it just isn't Civ. With Dan Q, Mega Bears fan, Alpha Shard, Timothy 001, and Ceiling Cat. The thread is called The Capital and uh, Buff the Palace in um, parentheses. This topic is by Archon Wing, and they say One thing I find a bit underwhelming is that your capital is often just another city. I mean, sure, nobody can burn it down, it has three extra defense. Uh, LOL, and has one more housing and some base yields, but those are necessary to even play the game wet. Past uh, early game, the capital doesn't really have much value outside of a domination victory, so maybe the capital could get more boosts early on. At the same time, I think a stronger palace would also help the offset the bad starts, especially coastal starts or ones without luxuries. I would restart that immediately. Likewise, with the government plaza, right now I see the government plaza as more of a dump district where you just crank out the buildings for abilities and promotions, but the actual placement of it really isn't that important. The thing about a district that improves other districts is that you need other districts near it to begin with. Of course, these districts, if done too heavy-handedly, could devalue the importance of playing your start with autocracy. Could already be considered too good already. I think they should do something about Republic, but, you know, dot, dot, dot. I guess it comes down to housing being an incredibly oppressive early game, which I think is actually a design intent as it would take time for people to be able to develop ways to have big cities. But currently, a lot of players simply ignore it completely and don't grow past size six, 
which kind of tosses out a lot of the game anyways. I remember in Civ 2, and Civ 1 even had it, where you couldn't grow past a certain level unless you had aqueducts, and then later on, sewage system. Yeah, um, 3 had that too. Yeah, and then Civ 4, you would have health and sickness managing your city sizes. But this one, it's to strategize when you build that housing or how you get that extra housing to keep your city growing at a, a good steady rate. Now, I was looking at the palace building in the previous games because I wanted to refresh myself on what they do. And Civs 1 through 3, it was primarily just to reduce corruption, which was like the major city spread balancer back then. And then Civ... like the exact opposite of what palaces actually do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then Civ 3 had like one culture point, it looked like, and Civ 4, you got two culture points, one happy citizen, and then you got eight commerce and four espionage points. So it started doing more, as you can see in Civ 4, and then Civ 5 had considerable more with plus three science, plus three hammers or production, plus one culture, plus three commerce, and then Civ 6 apparently is less, so I can see how they might feel a little underwhelmed considering what it did in Civad. One thing, though, that often did frustrate me in earlier games of Civ is that I felt like you had to do everything in your capital because your capital was just so much better than every other regular city. Like, if I wanted to build a wonder in Civ 5 or in Civ 4, it basically had to go in the capital because otherwise I wouldn't have enough production in my other cities to finish it in time unless I was able to get, like, one or two really, really productive cities. I actually kind of like that Civ 6 made it so that more of the other cities are actually useful and the uh, wonder terrain requirements help that a lot too because you might not have the terrain eligibility to build a wonder in your capital so you have to spread them out a little bit more and i actually kind of like that better so i'm kind of in the other boat where i like that the capital is not substantially better than every other city but i do kind of agree that the capital should maybe be a little bit more special like maybe there should be more unique things that you do in the capital i was actually really surprised in rise and fall that the government district did not have to be in the capital I think there's some realism here, too, because just because a city is a capital doesn't necessarily mean it's a trading center or that it has good production. There might be other cities in better resources. And this is just where the command structure is and everything else is like the production city might be over there. The commerce city might be over there or the research might be in a different city. Well, in fact, throughout a lot of history, the reason for expansion and and imperialism was because they needed to bring more resources into the capital city because the Mm -hmm. capital had exhausted all of its available resources and wasn't very productive or wealthy unless they had all those colonies or conquered cities and client states sending them resources and tribute. I kind of view the being able to construct the government plaza in a city other than the capital, the the way how in some countries not every single major department of the government is housed in the exact same city. And True. the thing that kind of got me from the opening post from Archon Wing when he talks about the government plaza specifically, that its actual placement of it really isn't that important. That is not true. It's not that it's an independent placement comparison, but more of a dependent placement comparison, because any district that it is adjacent to is going to get plus one of that measure. So if you have a couple of cities that are close together, you're able to put, say, campus from one city and a campus from another side by side so that you could also place the government plaza there beside both of them, then that would be advantageous because that would be an additional beaker per turn for each of those, which would be plus two as 
compared to if you put the government plaza and it was just beside one of those or it was beside a commercial hub or a series of commercial hubs. The thing about the palace itself, the fact that you can't move it, however, that it's not an option, I think is an interesting one. And perhaps the reason they did take that away is because, as was alluded to, the corruption mechanism was removed, and that was the main reason to want to move your capital. I'm not certain there is necessarily a reason to move your capital right now, but it would be nice to have that option given the fact that the palace provides plus two production, plus one culture, plus two science, plus five gold, a housing, an amenity from entertainment, a slot for a great work of any type. For me personally, the biggest reason why I would maybe want to move the palace is to make another city more productive. But historically in Civ, the way to move the palace was to build the palace in another city. So it would be like I'd have to spend a crap ton of production in order yes. to boost my production. So oftentimes it just wasn't worth it, especially since the city that I wanted to move the palace to was so unproductive to begin with. It just takes forever. It was never really practical. So I maybe experimented with it once or twice in Civ 3 or Civ 4, but it was just never worth doing from my perspective. Fraxis, an idea for you. Make the palace radiate loyalty pressure. Yeah. <laughs> and that might give you a reason to want to move it, because maybe you do something like Spain colonizing Brazil, where you move your palace across the ocean in order to maintain loyalty in your colonies. The thing that gives you the loyalty pressure is the government plaza, which is worth plus eight mm -hmm. in the city. And then it gives plus one adjacency bonus to all other adjacent districts like I talked about. And it also, once you construct it, it awards the one governor title. I could see maybe perhaps you would like the ability to move your government plaza, but you would have to decide, am I really willing to invest the time and the hammers? And this should be something that you would have to construct. We don't want to get into the, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to, you know, by being able to construct the government plaza. But you could Unless be that to... were like a Civ's unique ability or something. And... I could see that as maybe if like Constantine were a leader for Rome or Byzantium or something like that, you know, that could be like a unique power for him. Or it could be, yeah. you know, like, or a discount on, on the purchasing it uh, yeah. you know, with gold or in production. Similarly, you could say that if you construct the government plaza within the city that has your palace, maybe it gives you a 20 or a 25% boost to actually constructing the government palace, seeing as how there are already government workers here and otherwise government infrastructure in place, <laughs> that could be an incentive for you to put that there, except that there has been one case in a multiplayer game recently where I constructed my government plaza on a fringe city after the AI forward settled me. It's not like I forward settled them. Suddenly they're on my island and now I'm getting loyalty pressure from them because at the time they were a larger sieve. I constructed the government plaza there because I hadn't constructed it yet, which happened to be a good thing that I hadn't been paying as maybe as close attention to it as I should have because even moving the governor there, that wasn't enough because it was plus 10, plus 15 pressure and it's like, oh crap, it's going to flip in six turns. You know, I don't have enough time to increase the population, for example. I'm not going to have time to get a unit over there to provide additional what have you. But I think the ability to move your government plaza around, I think the only thing that you would have to watch is if you've then constructed your government plaza and you've started to build like those tier one or those tier two buildings from your governments, then you made that choice to move it, but you start over with a government plaza. If you want those buildings, you can go ahead and construct those buildings, but you're going to have to construct them again. They don't move with you. This is just starting over again with the district. Yeah. 
the other thing I was thinking of is I remember back to Civ 3, and I think some of the other ones had it too, where it was mostly just for the aesthetics, but you could, you know, customize your palace and, you know, your people were happy and you build another layer on top of your palace of some weirdly jarring architectural style. But maybe that's something that they could bring back too, is that, you know, once you hit some sort of threshold, you can add something to your palace, which increases its usefulness in a certain way. And now that they show all the districts and buildings actually on the map, that could maybe even be something where you're actually customizing the object on the map and, you know, other players could hypothetically see that. Yeah. Angel Tufnell, too, says that he would be in favor of the government plaza not counting towards the district limit in the capital city. That Uh, makes sense. I kind of wish it just didn't count towards the district limit at all. But I could definitely see if the capital had an exclusion for that could maybe be a, a nice benefit to putting it in the capital. I actually like the idea of accounting as a district. You are making a choice. Am I going to construct it now or am I going to construct it later? What city am I going to construct that in? It could be in the capital. Maybe the incentive is, hmm, it's going to take a district, but but because it's my capital, I can build it 25% faster. Is the benefit that I'm going to get from it worth it as compared to constructing, say, that commercial hub or that campus that I was thinking of doing next? Disgustipated also likes the idea, however, of the government plaza not counting towards the district, which makes the tier one building not so great, but oh well. And a clue without goes so far as to say, it is ridiculous how I'm forced to build the government plaza early on with only three or four cities. You are not forced to build it. It is a choice. (laughs) You are not forced to build it. You can completely ignore it in the game, as a matter of fact. And it's not always going to be that you should be building it early. And if you do build it early, what buildings do you put in there and when, just like any particular district for that matter? So I wouldn't go that far, and I certainly wouldn't want it to be that you are forced to build it early or you are always forced to be constructing it later. If you want to make it like a unique district, just like the palace itself is unique, for it to be, you can only have one government plaza district, but at some point, you may want to move the government plaza, because your empire has grown twice as large, and you need another seat of government on the front in order to enforce your rule. It's not an instantaneous thing, and again, you'd have to start with no buildings in there, but it might actually be worthwhile to, if not counter that loyalty pressure, then simply to have it because we've got a real big cluster of other cities here. There are all of these districts that I could benefit from that adjacency bonus, that that's worth my time. One thing I'd like to see with the government district is more buildings per tier with different options. Like the tier one, there'd be maybe five or six different buildings instead of the current three. More options maybe make it that you might build it earlier because a lot of my games, I've been building it a lot later. And it seems like almost an afterthought sometimes for me. Yeah, or maybe even just uh, buffing up some of the earlier abilities as well. I think extra versatility would help. Like maybe something that uh, has more of an economic benefit gives you an extra trade route or maybe buffs existing trade routes or buffs internal trade routes. I don't know, maybe you build a post office or a postal service, add some bonus to all your internal trade routes or something like that. I could see something like that working as an extra option. Yeah. There was a suggestion by a clue without in the thread, for example, like moving the government plaza back to the medieval era. But even the notion, I, I can't remember if it came up in the th- thread or not, or it just came to me otherwise, was, you know, when you start the game, maybe in order to have the benefits of a palace, that has to be one of your builds. Okay, well, first off, how much is this going to cost to build? Because if that's something you're going to need to do from the early game, then you don't want it to be too prohibitive, but at the same time, what the palace is giving you, other than perhaps the plus five gold from the beginning, I mean, right away you can be 
having something that works some kind of production, the palace is going to give you plus two production. And then the plus one culture, you can get those measures from other things. I'm not certain I want to go the route of that you have to construct the palace from the beginning, but you could have it so that, you know, at a certain point in time, you construct the palace. These are the benefits it's giving you now. As time goes on, if your city gets a little larger, then you're going to get a little bit more of effect. Okay, maybe you get a little bit more production, a little more culture, a little more science, a little more gold. But at the very least, the ability to be able to move the palace would be nice. Although, yeah, right now, I don't know why you would want to do that. But certainly there's something to be said about moving the government plaza. And as for, you know, you suddenly no longer have that and that hex then becomes vacant, then I guess that's just kind of replacing, you know, a farm with a neighborhood. Even you're going from a hex that doesn't have a, a, a district to a hex that does have a district. It could work the exact same way. I hope you wouldn't say, shoot, this would be a really nice place for a wonder. Although I guess you could. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna move the government <laughs> plaza somewhere else so I can place it there. Maybe that's not the best choice. Maybe that is something you want to do creatively and not optimally. But dang it, if you want to do it, go ahead and do it. I think the game should allow you to do that. I think one thing that we haven't brought up when we were talking about moving the palace is that it doesn't really make a lot of sense sort of economically, but there is sort of, you know, the cheese, cheesy version of, oh, person, my capital's near other people, I'm going to move my capital to this thing that's behind a mountain range or something like that, whether that's a valid sort of strategic thing or not. Well, seeing as how it's about, you know, the original capital... Mm-hmm. So if you go ahead and you move the palace and you say, haha, that's not my capital anymore. It's like, well, that's fine. It was your initial capital. And that's what I need towards the domination victory. Then if you do move it into a city that's surrounded by a lot of mountains, then it's like, oh, well, well, I, I guess it is cheese because it's not like you just screwed me over. Like I rightly should have gotten that. You realize that was going to happen. That was kind of a jerk move to kind of be able to do. Plus, how realistic is it that you'd be able to do that in the midst of all this turmoil if I'm about to take your freaking capital? But I guess if someone did that, you could just say, oh, that's classy. If I'm about to take your city, maybe you should have not been constructing a palace in another place. But I don't know. <laughs> constructing units to, to fight me. What are you, an AI? <laughs> <laughs> the only thing about even Civilization Four moving the palace was... Kind of one of those things you might have done accidentally, or you just yeah. wanted to do it just for the yeah. lulls. Because in Civilization Four, with the corruption thing, there was this thing called the Forbidden Palace, when everybody could build the Forbidden Palace, as opposed to being the wonder of the world that it is in Civ Six now. That functioned as another palace that would help reduce the corruption in those rather larger empires. So I guess yeah. the thing is, it's a two-step process. How come we can't move our palace right now short of, of course, your palace is automatically moved to your next biggest city if and when your current capital, be it your original or otherwise, is captured? It would be nice to be able to move it, but maybe the reason that we can't move it, and some people might say, Dan, you're giving Firaxis too much credit. Well, maybe, but why would you want to bother? So if we're going to reintroduce rebuilding the palace somewhere else, then let's also make it a worthwhile choice that you would want to do that rather than just doing the lip service to hey, how come we can't move the palace? Because right now, there's all the reasons, I think, in place to move the government plaza, but not the palace itself. Mm-hmm. Well, the one thing that the palace does have, though, is it has the uh, great work slot in it. So I could see something where maybe you want to move the palace to a city because you want to put a great work in that slot to generate more culture or something like that to press your borders out further. But again, the amount of hammers the time it would take to produce a palace in a city like that just wouldn't make it very practical. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe they have a system where your palace starts out not very powerful, but it becomes more powerful as you expand it over the course of the game. Yeah, I think that would make sense. 
it increases the importance of the palace slash capital, which is addressing the big question. It also gives you players a choice if they make it like a government plaza. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon. Call in today. In North America, 301-637-7659. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. Log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Record date assorted. 2018. Civilization 4, 5, and Beyond Earth Sound Clips, copyright Take 2 Interactive. Door Monster Clip, copyright Door Monster. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.